Welcome to the Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at FoleyTom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. We have two great guests on the uh, program today. We have Sally Kim, Director of Payer Research at Advisory Board, and we also have Chelsea Needham, Research Consultant, also with the Advisory Board. Both welcome to the program. Thanks, Tom. So what interests me is you uh, you wrote a, a blog post entitled Five Reasons Health Plans Are Investing in the Digital Front Door, and I thought it was a very compelling write, and I personally feel as if health plans are the one entity that needs to help in the transformation of the delivery of care. Sally, I'm just going to start with you. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about the advisory board and your particular role? Sure, happy to. My name is Sally Kim, and I'm the director of our health plan research. And advisory board is a healthcare research firm that really is in the industry of boiling the ocean that is healthcare into just the need to know insights. I specifically study health plans, so I'm talking to plan executives every day about their challenges, their successes, what they're trying. And this comes out of a study that we just ran on digital member engagement specifically. Yeah, thanks um, for having us. Um, my name is Chelsea Needham. I'm also a research consultant with the advisory board. Um, Sally kind of already went over advisory board and what our research entails, but uh, just a little bit more about myself, my background. I also have a master's degree in public health, and I've also had some experience working at a major health insurance company before. Um, and just to piggyback off Sally's point of this member engagement research, we spent a lot of months uh, working on this research. So we are excited to dive in and talk further about this article that you're interested in. Awesome. Let's do that. Let's dive into this article. So you talk about the the five reasons uh, health plans are investing. And what was most interesting to me, now everyone knows the payer, currently as being the the claims adjudicator, right? They pay the bill. And there are some, in my view, challenges with the way current plans are structured. I believe one of the biggest inhibitors to care is actually the copay. And people's ability to afford access to care is very critical. But one of the things you call out in your paper, the digital front door trifecta for health uh, health plans, you talk about uh, the digital tools, provider search tools, telehealth, price calculators, navigation services, digital wellness programs, and digital care management programs. Those were the two that were of greatest interest. Chelsea, tell me a little bit more about what was meant by digital wellness and what the payers are looking for to do in that space. Well, more broadly, when we talk about digital tools, I think it's important to first unpack what we mean by the digital front door trifecta. You know, that encompasses digital tools, member messages, and communication modes. So it's how members and patients are interacting with the healthcare system and how health plans can use these digital tools to send these messages through these communication modes. And so when we think about digital wellness programs, we're thinking about things to improve quality 
or the member, their healthcare treatment. We're talking about specific initiatives that a lot of health plans are instituting in a digital way to be able to close gaps in care and be able to improve the member experience, but also improve their health outcomes. And so I know Sally has some more to tack on, so I'm happy to pass it to her. Yes. And where I want to start is where you started, Tom, actually, of plans are not just claims adjudicators anymore. And that's why we even try to call them plans, right? Not payers, because they are doing more than paying for care. When we talk to them, they're really focused on that holistic member element. And in fact, more and more are becoming these diversified health solutions companies or what we like to call them. Because even if you take a look at the nationals and the non-nationals, they're starting to acquire and merge and um, bring in-house providers and these digital solutions and all the this care management and wellness as well. Uh, so before we get started in uh, reviewing each of the five reasons that you've outlined in this blog post, can you outline what is meant by the digital front door? Yeah, that's such a good question because even in our research, everyone we spoke to had a different interpretation. And I feel like we're starting to use this word as an industry almost as a catch-all term um, for anything that we try to do digitally. But what we want to emphasize is, yes, it's the front door. So it's that front entry point when a member or patient will utilize the healthcare system. But it is the combination of three distinct things that Chelsea already mentioned. So the communication mode, you know, are they finding out via email, text, app, chatbot, etc.? Um, second, the actual tool that they're using. So that could be a virtual visit. That could be a price calculator. And then lastly, even the message you're sending, right? So even beyond the mode, are you saying to the member, find an in-network PCP? Are you saying to the member, uh, manage your chronic condition? And all those three combined are what create the digital front door. Very interesting. Within the the blog post, uh, you again list five reasons, and the first reason being uh, the consumer and the purchasers came to expect digitalization during the pandemic. And you also call out the experience that a consumer expects, and you compare that to Amazon, Google, and Wells Fargo. Uh, Chelsea, tell us a little bit more about and why this reason. Yeah, I think the biggest takeaway from that is often we think of health plans being in competition between one another to be able to attract um, members to their plan by implementing new and innovative tools. But in addition to that competition, there's also the additional competition outside of this particular market when we think about other purchasers and performers on the market, such as Amazon, Google, or Wells Fargo, because during the pandemic, as you know, many things became digital. People had to use digital platforms to see a doctor or to deposit a check. And so because that expectation landed with the pandemic and consumers carried that expectation over beyond the pandemic. And so uh, health plans have try to match that expectation because of the priority that has come about with using digital tools. And so that's really one of the big things that came up in our study, um, just the pandemic basically acting as a catalyst to digitize you know, routine services and providing the capability to have these virtual components built in um, as a member. Interesting. Sally, would you say that the plans are falling behind the digital race in context of what the consumer expectations are? Yes. So I think that we all knew that 
healthcare, the healthcare industry as a whole is slower than other industries when it comes to technology adoption. (laughs) Um, But I think it just became even more prominent during the pandemic and people aren't differentiating. You know, this is the service I get from my shopping websites. And then this is the service I get from my healthcare websites. They expect that to be the same. They're both websites, right? So I think for health plans, now they're recognizing that okay, I'm not just competing with other health plans. I'm not even competing with other healthcare organizations. They are competing with the Amazons and Googles of the world. Yeah, and so one is purely consumer-oriented, the Googles of the world, right? They they don't have, although they they are playing in the delivery of care market, their greater presence is consumerism and are making every effort to empower uh, the consumer, embracing their current state of health, and engaging and wanting to provide services for them to engage. My personal opinion is that that hospitals and plans have been remiss uh, in in recent years before and during the pandemic in allowing the consumer to engage. It's always been about the hospital or about the provider. It really has been very little about what the consumer wants uh, or needs. And uh, there's been very little consumerism about uh, healthcare, frankly. Let's move on to uh, reason number two. Reason number two states members' experience is weighed more heavily in 2023 and 2023 star ratings, which is awesome. Uh, So improving digital access and satisfaction is especially important in Medicaid Advantage uh, bonuses. Chelsea, you want to start us off here? Yeah, I'm happy to start here. Um, I think member experience is a core component across all lines of business in the health plan industry, um, in the commercial business and Medicaid, Medicare. Providing a good member experience is essential to being a great health plan. But to speak more specifically about the Medicare Advantage aspects, I don't know if you all are familiar with the Medicare Advantage star rating system, but um, when a health plan performs well with a Medicare Advantage plan, they get a very high star rating. Um, And for having a a high star rating, you know, health plans can receive bonuses. They can also um, receive other perks such as extended enrollment. And so um, in 2023, that member experience metric is going to make up almost 57% of that rating. And so in order to keep a high rating, plans will really have to make sure um, that they are providing a good member experience. And a lot of that does have the capability to come from digital tools as well. 57% of the star rating is currently based on member experience. Is that correct interpretation? Yes. And that's broken down into different segments. So there are different metrics underneath that member experience that contribute to the overall member experience metric. So for example, like being able to get care quickly, that's a category that is used like as a tool to define the member's experience and as a calculation for um, being able to kind of define what the member experience is like with your particular health plan. So a lot of way there are a lot of things that plans are doing to be innovative in this space. They have a huge responsibility, especially when you consider that like when they partner with people, a lot of that reflects back on them as a health plan. So making sure that their partnerships with vendors and other people that they work with as well provide a good member experience because it's all essential to being a good health plan and creating that positive experience for members. It's interesting you talked about as the example, getting a uh, an appointment rather quickly. 
you know, the average national average is uh, waiting 26 days for a scheduled appointment. Why is the Medicare Advantage plan versus the provider themselves who's actually granting the appointment any better than any other uh, plan on the market? I think I understand your question. So I think if you think about having access to a virtual visit, right, in theory, a provider could offer a virtual telehealth service to their patients to see them. But a health plan can also offer that same service. I think health plans have that imperative to do it because, again, it's essential to the member's experience. So if a provider's office doesn't have the tools or capability to structure virtual visits or have digital tools to implement to maybe see a provider sooner, that that's when the health plan, you know, can come in and offer opportunities to see a provider um, to shorten those wait times. So they offer platforms like virtual health platforms to see a provider. This isn't to say that MA plans are better at access to visits than other (laughs) plans. It is more that all plans are still on the hook, even if they're not the ones providing the actual care. And sometimes that is a frustration for plans because they feel like, oh, we don't even have that much control over this. And yet we are being dinged when our members don't get to see care fast enough. And that's why they're constantly trying to work with providers. So this isn't, this also isn't about trying to cut providers out of the picture. It's actually trying to help providers. Right. Close the gaps. Exactly. Close the gaps where we can. Great point. Sally, number three, read rising healthcare costs have made members more demanding of price transparency and proof of insurance value. This is a great call out. Can you uh, kick us off on what was meant here, what the findings were and what payers are doing? Sure. So as probably everyone has felt healthcare costs are expensive and rising. And in fact, we actually expect that it it will continue to go even higher because of inflation. We as consumers are feeling inflation right now um, or even months ago with our grocery shopping and the gas prices. But in healthcare, there's a lag. So right now what's happening is providers are feeling that inflation impact their supply and their workforce. And then they're going to negotiate higher rates with plans, if they can, um, to account for those increased costs. And then plans are going to have to pass that cost along somehow, either to employers or by increasing premium amounts or um, other cost sharing types. And that's why eventually we'll see even higher prices. And because of that, because we're actually feeling a hit in our wallet, consumers are becoming more demanding of price transparency and proof of insurance value. I mean, it's the only industry where we're paying for things after we receive them, having no idea how much something will be, right? So I think plans are trying to improve their calculators and their provider directory so that they can give better estimates beforehand. Yeah, so it actually kind of leans into reason number four when we talk about members need alternative scalable entry points into the healthcare due to provider shortages. You know, to me, I think the transparency is important. I get it, and and consumers should have access access to that. But before figuring out how much it's going to cost, you know, the minimum is how much is the copay. And I, I, don't, I know I mentioned that earlier, but it is one of the greatest inhibitors in that even if I had 20% copay for a Medicare plan, sometimes that's the inhibitor in and of itself 
and I could actually go through the the process of getting the care, even though I paid that 20% for the access, but I have to now pay more uh, relative to the cure, right? Prescription drugs, additional tests. It starts to get very expensive very quickly. To me, is you know one of the greater inhibitors to uh, patients trying to achieve that uh, greater degree of wellness. Your thoughts? We'll start with you, Sally. Yes, it's definitely an inhibitor. I think one of the reasons copays and these other cost-sharing mechanisms were set up in the past is because they wanted to make the consumer a actual consumer of care, right? If you're not the one paying for it, you don't know how much things cost. You also don't care how much things cost. So trying to put numbers that could nudge um, patients into the the right direction. So for example, maybe you maybe your first in, instinct is to go to the ED, but by putting a higher copay on an ED visit compared to a regular primary care visit is one lever that plans use to try and nudge folks to lower cost sites of care and lower in intensity sites of care beforehand. Yeah, but think about that with all due respect. I, I am a patient. I need to get to the emergency room. Let me pause a minute and check my app to see how much it's going to cost me. So they're thinking, hey, I'm just going to the emergency room. I'm going to deal with the bill later. I mean, that's a whole aspect of understanding costs in the context and in the, in, and in the moment is critical relative to whether or not the patient ultimately can deliver the service. I would agree with you. The emergency room is a very expensive place to be. But at the same time, in the moment, sometimes the only place to be. Yeah, no, I mean, I completely agree. And that's why high deductible health plans that surged in popularity over the past few decades. I mean, we're doing the research into it now and finding that they didn't quite work because they were trying to put some more of the ownership onto the patient so that the patient has finances in mind. But that's really hard to do in healthcare when if it's an emergency situation or even if it's not. Even for preventive care, high deductible health plans have shown to decrease folks going and getting preventive care. And that's not what we want for the long term. That's not what plans want either. And honestly, I'm from Toronto originally in Canada. So on this entire healthcare system, the more and more um, I work in this industry, the more and more confused I get. I hear you. Uh, <laughs> so trust me, I've been here 23 years. So Chelsea, this number four is, in my view, one of the most critical points, provider shortages you mentioned. And the point there being is I'm a payer. I'm a plan. I have uh, 80% of my costs are going to 20% of my membership in the context of managing chronic conditions and things of that nature. I've said on my program before, the physician is typically, uh, with all, again, due respect, they're on their, their hamster wheel. They're trying to make money right? They're trying to make a living. And the only way they know sometimes to make more money is to see more patients. But that doesn't necessarily meet the needs of the consumer relative to their need to get to wellness. And this is where I think the payer has the greatest chance to step in. And quite frankly, a gr the greatest chance to achieve some of the models that you talked about earlier in the context of digital wellness programs and digital care management programs. So I'm going to just jump right to the idea of payers, plans, offering a remote patient monitoring and chronic care management as a standard offering and kind of step in front of the provider network and allow them to ultimately collect and engage the patient more 
in vigorously and and then sharing that clinical data with the providers in that patient's care plan. What are your thoughts on that? I think this is something that we also talked about in our study as well. The uh, picture that you just painted kind of reflects the current or the modern patient's healthcare journey that we're looking to get towards because in the past, health plans have struggled to be able to influence care there because they're often not in the room um, when a lot of this care is happening. So as a health plan, creating more points throughout the member's journey is going to be important to being able to treat those chronic conditions. So that is going to be virtual visits. It is going to be you know, remote patient monitoring and using other tools to be able to have those touch points with members throughout their healthcare journey um, when providers are not able to do so. So that is something that we've been having a conversation about as well. Uh, Anything you'd like to add to that, Sally? Yeah. So plans actually are already delivering care management or even offering digital tools, but I think it is, it's not for everyone, right? it probably would not be financially sustainable to offer it to every member, but for those who need it, for those who do have chronic care needs, plans are already playing that role. I think the challenge to your point is the coordination of care because we don't want it to ever feel like the plan is trying to do things without the provider's approval. So coordinating that care on the back end is key. And as we move to everything being digital, and I know we're talking about members needing alternative entry points because of the provider shortage right now, I think the main point here is that it's not that plans are trying to become that quarterback, that the role that the PCP has historically played, but just because you're the front door doesn't mean you're the quarterback. Yeah, that that is true. But in the idea of providers, uh, a Medicare, Medicare Advantage plan, remote patient monitoring, chronic care management is becoming the norm. And hypothetically, instead of the provider having to submit a claim uh, for that service, the, the the payer themselves could step in front and provide that service and, and not deal with the reimbursements. But the point is that if I am a patient and I'm being monitored for obesities and therefore I have a weight issue, I have potentially a diabetes type 2 issue, I have a cardio issue, right? So if you're issued a medical device, let's just start with a a blood pressure cuff and a scale and a continuous glucose um, monitor. I can now understand the state of that patient on a day-to-day basis. And I could also look at whether or not the patient or the consumer or the member is on their meds and they're on their care plan relative to diet and exercise and medication adherence. Right. Those are all things that are very important relative to getting to a degree of wellness as opposed to managing something versus moving to a cure. Those are two different models in and of itself. But the cost implications are drastic. Right. My listeners always hear me talk about the biggest loser show where under a managed care type of scenario, the patient comes into a facility and they're managed by a doctor. And then on the other side of the program, they are a totally different degree of state of wellness. And I think that's what we need to get to in healthcare. The plan is missing the, the, the gate on, you know, how do we move these patients more aggressively to a, a different state of wellness? You know, we, everybody needs to start looking at the delivery of care a little differently. And I am passionate about the payer being at the forefront of this transformation because others are just not there yet relative to implementing true transformation. So the last point of your 
your blog post. And uh, the reason number five was current events have shed spotlights on the health inequity and digital access points could help reduce health disparities. Uh, Sally, we'll start with you. Your thoughts? Sure. Yes. So I think there is a hope, a desire that as more access points go digital, that could increase access and help to reduce some of the health disparities that currently exist in America. So maybe, for example, maybe your working hours don't make it so that you can go drive hours to see an in-person specialist. But if you can see one virtually, does that increase access for some folks? So I think there's a lot of hope here and opportunity, but we still need to keep in mind that the digital divide still exists and there are um, pockets of America where accessing digital support is more difficult. So that's why we say could help reduce health disparities. And Chelsea, your thoughts? Yeah, similar, just to add on to Sally's point, they have the potential to make health more equitable, but there is also that part that exists that we have to consider inequities that could exist um, with more digital tools. If you think, for instance, having access to a virtual visit, if you're in a rural area, you know, that is increasing your opportunity to be able to see a provider. Um, But we also have to consider things that like to have a virtual visit. You also have to have access to Wi-Fi and the internet, and you have to know how to use these platforms, so digital literacy. So those are things that can also play a role in being able to create equitable health. We have to consider um, other things that come with that that could contribute to disparities as well. Interesting. Great points. And just so you're aware, I, I'm a believer that we have to achieve health equity for sure. And I'm not a one plan person. However, health equity to me is everybody has equal access to the same care at the same price. That's my definition of health equity. And, and Medicaid versus the care plan that congressmen have in Washington are two totally different plans and two totally different points of access and two different cost points. And until the congressmen accept Medicaid as their health plan, we'll never get to health equity because there will always be a difference. And even a plan in and of itself, there's narrow networks and there's broader networks and things of that nature. And that creates health inequities in and of itself. So I believe absolutely 100% believe we need to get to a greater degree of health equity. But I think we're far away from the nirvana of that idea, my personal opinion. I know we went through the five reasons, but then it kept coming to my mind that people might be asking why, right? Why are even plants trying to get involved here when it seems like a space that the provider should be playing. So I just want to clarify that plans are interested, A, not only to improve the patient experience and to increase access, like we mentioned, but also they're hoping that if they can get to these patients and engage them, then they can drive the members to care that will ultimately drive down spend for the entire industry. And then eventually that would drive down premiums and co-pays. I would agree. Great point and uh, great call out. Appreciate you raising that. So I want to close by saying it was a very interesting read, Five Reasons Health Plans Are Investing in the Digital Front Door. And the authors were Sally Kim, Director of Payer Research at Advisory Board, and Chelsea Needham, who was the research uh, consultant, also of the Advisory Board. You can find this blog post on the advisoryboard.com website. Uh, With that, I want to thank both of you for joining the program. You're always welcome to come back and, and talk more about what's going on in the payer space. 
No, thank you so much for having us. We we love speaking about healthcare topics and specifically member engagement. That's today's shift. I appreciate the audience taking the time to tune in. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune back in at the healthcarenowradio.com at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern throughout the week. And be sure to check out the program page at thevirtualshift.co. As well, remember to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter at FoleyTom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next shift.